Before we begin, I'd like to start with a a Bible knowledge quiz. I want to ask you a question, and and if you if you win, that's great. And if you don't, there's no penalty. So uh, so here is the quiz. Here's the here's the question. What is the sin of Sodom? What is the sin of Sodom? And was God justified in punishing Sodom for that sin? Think that over for a moment, and and ask yourself, what is the sin of Sodom? So, all right. Got your answer? You know, the Jeopardy theme here, you know. Uh, are you ready for, are you ready to find out? Let, let's find out what it is. Well, according to the book of the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 16, the sin of Sodom is this. He writes, this is the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters, so the town of Sodom and the, the surrounding regions, she and her daughters were proud and had plenty to eat and enjoyed peace and prosperity. But she didn't help the poor and the needy. This is the sin of Sodom. And um, if you thought the sin of Sodom was something else, well, um, now you know more than than uh, whoever told you that sin of Sodom was something else. So um, there's all kinds of surprises in the Bible, and I commend it to everyone. It's, a, it's an interesting experiment to find out what the Bible actually has to say instead of what people think the Bible has to say. So, so we're going to begin with that idea that there is a sin that is the sin of Sodom. It is to have, um, to, to be proud, to have plenty to eat, and to enjoy peace and prosperity, but not to help the poor and the needy. Today we are concluding this conversation we've been in. We've been in a conversation about, um, the, the ills in society, but really, um, from the perspective of Christians, which is how can we show the love of God in a society that is hurting? What can we do as Christians to show God's love in this in this hurting society? And the reason is because society is hurting. Uh, we began by looking at the sin of racism. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, and if you didn't see that, you can watch it online. Um, and then last week we looked at the 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 way that the way that we relate to the civil authority. What what um, what does our faith tell us about the the power of the government to to uh, police our society. How do we how do we relate to police? And in particular, what does our what does our faith tell us about police? In in when the the police are are violent, when there is violence from the police. So we've looked at those two questions already, and today we're going to look at the question of economic inequality. What does our faith tell us about economic inequality? So. Um, the reason is obvious because it, it is a contributing factor, or it certainly seems like it must be a contributing factor to some of the other problems we've been talking about. It's a, certainly, um, uh, um, associated with higher rates of crime and, uh, higher, and that in turn leads to higher rates of policing. Uh, but, but it has a wide swath. It cuts a wide swath, economic inequality. In fact, just earlier this year, we saw that economic inequality is implicated in the, the number of people who die from, from COVID-19. Uh, earlier this year, um, somebody compared the, the outer borough of, of the Bronx with the borough of Manhattan, and they found out that uh, even though they're pretty similar in population, there were twice as many deaths from people uh, who live in the Bronx. And the reason for that is that the, the average income in the Bronx is half of what it is in Manhattan. Um, that, that, um, that, uh, because people are poorer, they, they live in more crowded conditions and they, 
they have to ride uh, a subway longer. And um, we, we, we've heard about the way the subway was one of the places where the virus really um, tra- uh, uh, transmitted. Um, so so for, for various reasons, uh, economic inequality leads to really terrible outcomes, that, that the, the actual death rate from this pandemic was twice as high uh, for people in a poorer community. So, so we understand that economic inequality has real implications for people. Um, and so the question is, what, what are we as Christians, um, uh, called to do about it? And, uh, one of the things that, that we know is that, is that after 50 years of the war on poverty, um, uh, there's still work to be done. Uh, we've been involved in the war of po- on poverty since the mid-1960s, and what we've learned is that there aren't any easy answers. Or, or I should say, because, because there certainly has been some progress, I should say that the easy answers have done all they can do, and now we're finding the answers are increasingly difficult, that, that we're having to do more uh, work to get um, less of a, of a change. So, so um, in the uh, 1960s, our country had about half the population it has now. Um, so since then, we've doubled in population, um, and and there has been progress because as a as a num- as a percentage of our population, the amount of poverty has actually dropped. In the 1960s, the the poverty rate uh, had about 40 40 million people living in poverty, and today, um, as a as a percentage of the of the country, we have about the same number. We have 40, 40 um, million people, which is only half as many because we've doubled in population. So um, so we have had some progress. But on the other hand, during that time, the the size of the economy grew by a factor of three. And so so the, the number of people uh, increased by two, but the number, uh, the, the, the size of the pie Increased by three, and so so we we might ask, well, well, how come we didn't see that that same kind of um, uh, reduction in poverty? Um, and not only that, but we have uh, quadrupled our spending on low income uh, uh, people, people in uh, lo- who who are benefited by low income programs. So so we've increased our spending, and in fact, today we're spending about a trillion dollars a year, one trillion dollars in um, in uh, uh, means tested. Uh, programs, and uh, we still have 40 million people. So 40 million people is better than 80, which would be the number if nothing had been done. But but it's worse than than 20 or 10 or none. So uh, we have learned that the the easy answers um, seem to have um, uh, we seem to have used up all of the easy answers, and now we're finding that the answers are harder and harder to come by. So. So, um, what does our faith tell us about this problem? Uh, what, what can we as Christians contribute to the conversation about economic inequality in our society? Well, there is a great story in chapter 16 of Luke's, um, Luke's uh, biography of Jesus. And, um, uh, we're gonna look at it today because it, uh, is a, is a, speaks directly to the questions related to income inequality. So it's in chapter 16 of uh, Luke's gospel, and um, and uh, it it tells us, uh, Jesus, Jesus uh, begins, this is in verse 19, he says, There was a certain rich man who clothed himself in purple and fine linen, and who feasted luxuriously every day. So, 
Um, so we don't know who this rich man is. We don't know what his name was. We don't really even know if he was a real person or if Jesus is telling a parable. So, um, uh, he, he may mean, you know, imagine a, a rich man. So, um, it's either a parable or it's a story, uh, or it's a true story, uh, um, a, a historical event. We don't know, but Jesus is using this to illustrate a point and we can, we can, uh, learn what he's got to say regardless which one of those it is. And what does he tell us about this rich man? Well, again, he doesn't tell us the man's name, but he does tell us, um, that he wears purple and fine linen. So purple was very expensive to make in those days. So today that would be like saying he wears he wears Armani suits. He's got a closet full of Armani suits and his wife has has a closet full of Gucci bags. So so um he's well off. He's he's rolling in money. And uh we will miss the significance of what Jesus says if we just go okay he's he's very well off. Um, what we have to appreciate is that Jesus is setting his his um, listeners up because in the first century they would have understood that to mean this this guy's the protagonist this guy's the hero of the story uh, because we, we know he must be a good guy because because God has smiled on him he wouldn't be rich if God hadn't blessed him if God hadn't uh, shown favor to him why would he be rich and that's really the way people would have thought about it in the first century. We lose a lot of that uh, today because we've had the influence of this story and some of the other teachings of Jesus um, over the last 2,000 years. But that would have been the understanding in the first century. And we still have echoes of it in our own society. Um, for example, if you think of the word if you think of the word fortune, uh, you know, he made a fortune in real estate or something. Uh, he made a small, anyway, I'm not going to go there. So, uh, the, the word fortune, it means a pile of money, right? But it also means, uh, uh, good luck. It means that, that, um, luck or chance or, or fortune has favored you. So that would have been very much the mindset in the first century that this rich man, he's the one we got to keep our eye on because God has been favoring him. That's how he got so rich. So that's the place Jesus begins with. And then he goes on and he says, he says, um, not just a fancy clothes. He says he feasted luxuriously every day. Now, the interesting, interesting thing about that, that point is Jesus says it's every day. Uh, Jesus doesn't have a problem with people eating luxuriously. Um, uh, uh, Christianity and Judaism before it uh, were characterized by by regular feasting. There was a, a pattern in the in the religious uh, calendar, and people feasted from time to time. Uh, uh, but but this man feasts luxuriously every day. Uh, so so uh, there's nothing wrong with feasting, and in fact, we see in the um, in the descriptions in the Bible where it talks about the age to come, you know, when, when Jesus returns and completes his work of salvation, um, he ushers in this new age. Um, one of the things that will characterize it is that there, you know, the, the divine banquet, the, the, the people will sit at table, um, together in the kingdom of God. Uh, it, it, we, we read about, um, uh, choice meats and, and fine wine. So, so, uh, we, um, we understand that Christianity is not saying there's anything wrong with wealth or or uh, um, or feasting. The the problem is that this guy does it every day, and there's somebody else who can't. There's somebody else who can't join the party because Jesus goes on and tells us about another man. He says, "At his gate lay a certain poor man named Lazarus." 
So, uh, and remember, in the first century, our perspective is, okay, well, that, that's the guy that God is frowning on. That, you know, he must have gotten poor for some reason. He must have done something that got him on the wrong side of God. So, so that's why he is, he is laying there in the gate, um, uh, because, because he's being punished for his sin or something like that. That would have been kind of the, the mindset of that first century audience. And, um, he's not only poor, but he's covered with sores. And I think this is a place where we need to be honest and ask ourselves, do we want this guy to come sit down next to us? Really? And, and, and if we're okay with him sitting next to us, how about if he, if he, uh, moves in? How about if he becomes an in-law and we see him at all the holidays? Are we really happy with that idea? Jesus has placed, placed this picture of somebody that, that we would find difficult to embrace. And he says, that Lazarus, this poor man, longed to eat the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. Instead, dogs would come and lick his sores. He didn't get the crumbs. That instead, he sat out there by the gate. The rich man feasted luxuriously every day, and all he got was dogs. And in, in the first century, in, in in that culture, dogs were not a you know happy thing. That the dogs were scavengers, you know, roaming the 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 village. And, uh, he can't, he doesn't even have the strength because he can't even eat crumbs. He doesn't have the strength to fend them off. So the dogs come and they lick his sores. And then Jesus goes on. He says, the poor man died and he was carried by angels to Abraham's side. <laughs> and, and at this point, we, we kind of like, can't understand what Jesus is saying. How could that possibly be? Not only that, the rich man also died, and he he was just buried. No angels, no Abraham. He just got dumped in a pit. And at this point, I like to imagine Jesus drops the mic. You know, that's it. He has he has completely challenged everything that his audience has to can can conceive of in the area of money and economic inequality he's he's gone to the very basis of their of their thought life about money jesus says says that the wrong man goes to heaven the wrong man goes to be with um abraham uh in in eternity and i think the evidence of this is that he spent 4 Verses setting this up. And then he spends the next nine verses explaining that because, because the rich man is, is, is puzzled. He's, he's like, how, how did I wind up here? You know, Father Abraham, and he goes on, and you, you can read the story yourself. I don't want to, I don't want to pursue it, um, because honestly, it is a distraction to us. I don't know if it was a distraction in the first century. Maybe they found it helpful to explain it. But for us, the problem is, we get into questions about, you know, where is Hades, and, and, you know, how far is it from heaven, and there's, there's kind of some, some, uh, curious type questions that, that could distract us from Jesus's point. Jesus is talking about money here. And if we, if we go down, you know, what's the nature of the afterlife and where do we go when we die and things like that, we're missing what Jesus has to say about money and particularly about economic inequality. All through this chapter, he's been talking to people about money and he's still talking about money and we don't want to lose sight of what he's saying. The one hint we get, if we read the rest of it, we read that he asks, he asks, um, 
for uh, uh, Abraham to uh, send someone to warn his family so that they don't make the same mistake he does. And Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. He says, they have the Bible. They can always go read Moses. They can read the the, the first five books of, of Moses, and they can read the rest. They can read the prophets. They can do that anytime they want to. That's the only hint we get. What did this guy do wrong? Well, the answer is in the Bible. So, so what did he do wrong? Now, we may be curious. Um, if you're not a Christian, maybe that's all you are. You're kind of curious uh, where in the Bible is that, or you know what was Jesus getting at. But if you are a Christian, if if we believe that Jesus is actually the Lord of heaven and earth, then then it's vital for us to understand what He's getting at here, and the reason is because we're the rich man. You know, I'm the rich man. You're the rich man. I mean, this is the Internet. I don't know who's watching, but you're almost certainly the rich man. Um, you are that person. In this story, you are not Lazarus. Almost certainly. Let me, let me illustrate this. I want you to imagine getting a drink of water. Okay, got that in your head? How far did you have to carry it? Was it under a mile? Yeah. Did it give you dysentery? Yeah. So that's that's what I mean. For most of us, we are so rich, we cannot imagine what it means to be poor. So we are rich. Um, most of the people in this congregation are probably in the top 10% of global wealth. And if we own a home in Anchorage, then we're probably in the top 5% because because. We are rich. We are this rich man. We're rich by historical standards, of of course. I mean, if you've got a microwave oven, if you've ever used a microwave oven, then you're rich by historical standards. You're watching this message on the Internet. Compared to people in history, that alone would make us rich. But we're also rich... Com- compared to ourselves, if if you're more than about 30 or certainly 40 years old, you're rich compared to yourself. You're rich both because your your career has progressed, but also because your money goes so much further. If you bought a 21-inch TV in 1965, it would have cost you, in terms of today's purchasing power, that 21-inch color TV would have cost you about $5,800 in equivalent purchasing power. That's how much the price, you know, you, you, you can go to Costco today and they just don't have a TV that expensive. You can get, you can get in the four digits. You can, you can maybe find one for $2,500 or $3,500, but you can't find a TV so colossal that it costs $5,800. So we're rich. We're rich compared to ourselves. We're rich compared to uh, most of the people who've ever lived on this planet, and we're rich compared to a lot of the people who still do live in this planet. And that's why we need to understand, what did the rich man do wrong? What was his sin? What does he need to find when he looks at Moses and the prophets? Well, the answer is that Lazarus wanted only crumbs. Lazarus was poor, poor like we can't imagine, first century poor. And all Lazarus wanted was the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. And the rich man didn't help him. The rich man could have. These are crumbs falling off the table. He could have, he could absolutely have helped him and he didn't. 
See, what he did wrong wasn't an act of commission. He didn't commit a wrong. What he did is he omitted to do right. The rich man did wrong by not doing good. We see this in Moses and the prophets. The the prophet Isaiah um, records this. God speaks to him saying this, Wash and be clean. Remove your ugly deeds from my sight. Put an end to such evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. That it's not enough to say, I, you know, I, I come to church, I don't do anything that's bad, and here I am, you know, aren't I a good Christian? Through the prophet Isaiah, God says, yeah, but have you done anything good? Did you seek justice? Did you help the oppressed? Did you offend, defend the orphan? Did you plead for the widow? Because that's what doing good is. In the New Testament, the um, Apostle Paul writes a letter to Timothy, and he, he gives him this instruction. He says, hey, there's some rich people in your congregation, Timothy. And so we should listen, because remember, we are the rich people in that congregation. He says, tell people who are rich at this time not to become egotistical and not to place their hope in their finances. In other words, not to be like this rich man who says, I'm the hero of the story. God has blessed me because I am so awesome. I wear nice clothes. That's probably even improving God's God's life for me. He says, don't be egotistical. Don't put your hope on your finances, which are uncertain. Instead, Paul goes on, he says, they need to hope in God, who richly provides everything for our enjoyment. Tell them to do good, to be rich in good things they do, to be generous and to share with others. This is a straight through from the from the Hebrew Scriptures all the way through to the New Testament. It is not enough to not do wrong. That we have, as believers, a positive obligation to do good, to actually be rich um, in good deeds. That's what Paul tells us in his letter to Timothy. So, that's our... Responsibility. That's, that's the, the way that we can show God's love in a hurting world, in a world filled with economic inequality. What we can do is we can do good. We can plead the case of the widow. We can defend the orphan. We can assist the oppressed. These are things that we are called to do. Now, I want to make two, two, um, I guess two points before we uh, move to application. So the first one is this. Christianity does not tell us that we need to help people who don't need help. The, the idea here is not that, that you have to, to do things for people who can do for themselves. Um, in the, the second letter to the Corinthians, Paul says this, it isn't that we want others to have financial ease and you have financial difficulties. That's not the purpose. The goal is not just to say, you know, you've, you've been rich, now you should be poor and, you know, teach you a lesson or something like that. He's not saying that we need to just, just, um, help people who can help themselves. He says, instead, at the present moment, your surplus can fill their deficit. So that in the future, their surplus can fill your deficit. In this way, there is equality. He says some people, for whatever the circumstances were in Corinth at that time, uh, he, he's saying, he's saying that, um, it's not so they can lay around. It's because they can't do anything but lay around. Whatever the circumstances, you know, we don't know the, the details, but he's saying it's not about them relaxing. It's about you being able to help them 
through this crisis. And then when, someday when you're in a crisis, they can help you. So he says in that way there is equality. And Paul is, he uses even stronger language when he writes to the church in Thessalonica. He says this. He says, even when we were with you, we were giving you this command. If anyone doesn't want to work, they shouldn't eat. So, so Paul is not saying that you need to support people who are, who just refuse to work. But he is saying, if people need help, then as a Christian, it's our responsibility to help them. So that's the first point. We don't need to help people who don't need help. But the other thing is, Jesus didn't tell us to stop with crumbs. Right? The, the, Lazarus would have been happy with crumbs, the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. That would have been fine with, with Lazarus. But Jesus didn't say you should stop there. Jesus tells us instead to, to think about, um, about how it would land on us. Jesus tells a great story earlier in Luke's biography. He tells us about a, um, a man who invited Jesus, uh, for dinner and then basically gave him the cold shoulder, was very grudging, didn't provide him um, uh, uh, a proper welcome, didn't give him uh, the, the lotion that people would put on when they came into a house, didn't give him water to wash his feet. Uh, he basically gave Jesus the cold shoulder. But then a woman comes in, and uh, we don't know what, what her story is, but she begins um, uh, bathing Jesus' feet um, and, and wiping it with her hair. And it, that sounds very awkward to me, but Jesus looks at the, the his host and says, you gave me the cold shoulder, and she's giving me the, the, the treatment that comes out of gratitude. And he says this. He says, I tell you that her many sins have been forgiven. She has shown great love. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. So, yes, Lazarus would have been happy for crumbs, but Jesus doesn't tell us to stop with crumbs. And in fact, he tells us the golden rule. He says, you should treat people in the same way you want people to treat you. This is the law and the prophets. So we don't have to stop with crumbs. So that's that's what Jesus um, has taught us. He's taught us that, that despite our expectations about what it means to have a fortune, it doesn't mean that God is smiling you. It means that God has given you um, uh, a vocation to help people who don't have a fortune. So that's that's the first, uh, or that is the lesson here. And now I want to, to to move on and look at some some applications for this. The first one is Jesus is talking about a real person. This rich man has a poor man laying at his front door, right? He he can't go out of the house without bump without tripping over this guy. Lazarus is not an abstraction. He's not the poor somewhere. He is he is a real person, and and. He has real needs. He wants some crumbs from the rich man's table. He's got something wrong with him that makes makes he's got a skin condition or whatever it is. He's got sores. He needs he needs medicine, whatever you know the first century version of medicine was. He needs help. He's got real needs. He's not an abstraction. So we should be thinking not in terms of systems and structures. We should be thinking about real people. We should say, you know, I I want to help this person. Not because they're an abstraction, but because they are a real person. Now, does that mean that we can only uh, help people who are local to us? It, it doesn't. We can we can uh, help people through uh, charitable agencies or, or governmental agencies, um, but it's not enough to simply fire and forget. We can't simply you know write a check and forget about it because they're real people. They're not programs. They're not. They're not abstractions. They're real people, and so it's on us 
to see if we're having the right result. It's like, yes, I, I gave some money, but then I forgot all about it. That's that's not the goal. The goal is Lazarus needs some food and he needs some medicine. So we should be looking at our results. We want to actually do good and not just make ourselves feel better. So we want to to, to do good. The second, the second um, application is to think about this, not just from a lens of, of consumption. Uh, our society is a consumer society, and it's the, it's the default way we look at any problem. Does that person have enough to eat? And Jesus is very clear, that's, that's the first step. Does, does someone have enough to eat? He tells us in Matthew 25, he says, um, in a parable, he talks about the, the, the judgment at the end of the age, and he says, the king will say to, uh, the people on his on his uh, left, right or left, he says, "I was hungry and you didn't give me food to eat. I was thirsty and you didn't give me anything to drink. I was a stranger and you didn't welcome me. I was naked and you didn't give me clothes to wear. I was sick and in prison, and you didn't visit me." Jesus says, "Absolutely, we totally have to start with the basic necessities of life, but in our culture, that's." What, that's where we leave it too often. We, we think in terms of uh, cons- consumption and not in terms of producing. But uh, we are made in God's image, and God is a creative God. We need outlets for the creativity that God has put in us. So it's important that we have the ability to actually produce things. In the, the, the letter to the Ephesians, Paul says this. He says, thieves should no longer steal. And I have to, just as a little side comment, I love the idea that in that church, in the Ephesian church, there either was somebody who was a thief, or Paul knew that they knew people who were thieves and could explain to them that they should no longer steal. And we would say, yes, thieves definitely should no longer steal. That good, right? Then he says, they should go to work. And we, you know, absolutely, I'm with you. I'm with you, Paul. But then he says, why? Is it just so they can have the things to eat, just so that they can have food, just so they can have something to drink or clothes? He says, no. He says they should use their hands to do good so they will have something to share with someone who is in need. Paul is saying it's important to people. It's it's important to us as humans to have the ability to actually make a contribution, to actually uh, help to to grow the pie so that there's more to share with others. He says, even a thief, you know, I think a lot of us, we'd be satisfied if the guy quit stealing. But Paul says, no, he's he's not just somebody who needs to change where he gets his food. He needs to turn the, the arrow around. Instead of consuming things, you know, I, I take what's not mine. Instead to say, I produce things and I, I contribute them to, to the, the, the pie that we all can share from. So it's not just about consumption. And we need to think, do our, do the solutions that we have to offer, do they lend themselves to more than just consumption? Do we allow people to do more than consume? I was thinking about this. It says, it says that, um, thieves should no longer steal. I was thinking, as you know, I, I, did prison ministry um, some years ago, and I asked myself, can a thief in our society do something useful when he gets out of prison? Or, or 
Or is he going to be pretty much impossible to find work? Will he be able to do something with his hands? Will he be able to find a job? Uh, is he? Are we, as we put him in prison for, for doing something that is wrong, are we enabling him to, to develop the skills that will actually enable him to do something with his hands? Or are we simply warehousing him, hoping that he'll magically get better with time? So we need to ask ourselves, are we enabling people to, to, um, to overcome their, their background? Uh, how, how do we feel about background checks? How do we feel about, um, uh, the, the loss of privileges that comes with felony convictions? What do we do about, uh, someone who goes to prison and doesn't have a high school degree? How many jobs require a house, a high school diploma? Are we helping people get a GED? Are we, are we helping them to, to, uh, learn skills, uh, useful skills that they can use when they get outside? These are questions we should be asking ourselves because Paul says even a thief should be able to work with his hands. And so we need to ask those questions. And, and I know not everybody who's poor was a thief. Not everybody who's, who's poor has been to prison. But you know, there's two million people in our prisons today. And there's almost five million people who are either on parole or on probation. And you know, I'm kind of a simple guy, and I think, you know, if you, if you can help, uh, two million here and five million there, then eventually you might actually make a dent in, in some of the problems in our society. And then, and then multiply that by their families. How much of a difference would that make in their families? So we need to ask ourselves, are we, are we simply thinking about, you know, there, I've given you some food, you know, you're, you're in prison and you get fed every day. Is, is that, the, is that our mentality? Are we simply meeting people's basic needs or are we giving them an opportunity to, to be part of our society, to actually contribute to our society? Got two more. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try and make this as quick as I can. So, uh, the, the, the next question is, is what is the role of government? You know, last week we looked at the, the, the civil authority and we talked about how it has an authority. It's part of God's economy, but also we as, as citizens in a, in a republic, we have a role in the government. We're, we are the government. We are the king. And so what is the role of government? Um, and uh, there is a role for government, uh, but, um, but if the government doesn't do it, that doesn't relieve us of the obligation. If Lazarus is outside of our house and the government is not is not doing what it needs to do, then we still have the obligation, and Christians have. In in the 4th century, the Roman emperor was a man named Julian, and he was trying to revive the old pagan religions. And, and he was frustrated because there were all these Christians. By then, Christianity had grown and become the, the largest religion in the Roman Empire. And, and it frustrated him because he wanted to, you know, kind of, let's go back to the good old days. And it, what frustrated him is he said everybody knew that the Christians... Uh, took care of the poor better than the pagans. He said, he said, everybody knows this. It, it, it's common knowledge. They take care of the poor. And that was, that was, he was the government. So, so, uh, can, can, uh, can the government do something? Absolutely it can. But we can't depend on it doing something. We need to be ready to step in if it doesn't. So. Why, why should the government do it? Well, we see this uh, throughout the Old Testament. This is part of the kingly role. This is part of what governments are designed to do. In Psalm 72, we read this, Let the king bring justice to people who are poor. Let him save the children of those who are needy, but let him crush oppressors. So not just take care of the poor, but but 
take care of, to punish people who, who, uh, who oppress the poor. So this is a proper role of government. And not only that, um, there's a role for taxes. In, in the book of Deuteronomy, we read this. Every third year, you, you the, the people, must bring the tenth part of your produce from that year and leave it at your city gates. Then the Levites, who have no designated inheritance like you do, along with the immigrants, orphans, widows, who live in your cities, they will come and get enough to, to live on. Well, yes, they will. But more than that, they will feast until they are full. So, in the book of Deuteronomy, there's an, the, 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 the picture here is one of, of a, of a generous social safety net. Not, not, not a bare minimum social safety net, but a generous one so that the, the, the poor can actually feast. So, we should do that. We need to be careful. When, when Julian was talking about the, the Christians, Christianity had no role in government. But then the next, you know, 1600 years have happened and Christians have learned that, uh, it's very easy once you get in charge of the government to trample on people who don't share your faith. And so if we as Christians advocate for a certain policy, we have to appreciate some people will not be coming from, from our same perspective. And so we should exercise that, that role, uh, carefully, um, realizing not everybody shares our thinking on a particular topic. But we also need to realize that that the government is a blunt instrument. What I mean by that is this. I was reading a story about a single mom. She's living in, uh, this is in the United Kingdom, and she lived in, in, in a council estate. That's what they call a housing project in, in England. She lives in a, in a council estate, and the the social worker who was who was uh, working with her, um, as he as he dug into her situation and tried to figure out what was going on, they they figured out that um, that her the 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 root of all of her problems is that she'd gone heavily into debt to to buy a big screen TV. She she had she had the biggest TV in the entire um, uh, housing project, and and she would not. Do any, she would not envision any other path forward except to have that TV. And the reason was because she had a teenage son and that TV gave her son status and other kids would come to their apartment and they would play video games there. And she was convinced, she was utterly convinced that it kept him out of gangs. Now, I don't want a tax system where every welfare mom can buy a TV that's bigger than mine. But if I knew that mom and I heard her story, I'd take her to Costco myself. And I know there are people in this church, there's a lot of people in this church, who wouldn't hesitate to do the same thing. Because the government can't can't adapt to that situation. They can't hear that story and realize why, in this case, actually the TV is exactly what she needs. So we build our systems and we build our programs with kind of the least common denominator approach to people's needs. So the government certainly has a role, but the government is a blunt instrument. And lastly, let me say this. We need to be careful when we advocate for the poor. We need to be very careful. 
And the reason is not because the poor don't need advocacy. God knows they do. We see that, again, throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, we see that the poor, that, that people are commended for advocating for the poor. They do need an advocate. The problem is, it's very easy for us to use our advocacy, not on their behalf, but on our own, to advance our own agenda. And there's a story that's very very instructive, very disturbing. And it comes from John's biography of Jesus. Jesus got his feet anointed by a woman. She she anointed his feet with with very expensive perfume. And the disciples had a had a, 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 a kind of a fit. They, they they couldn't believe that that happened. And we read in Matthew's gospel that the disciples complained, and we read in Mark's gospels that some of the disciples complained. But in John, we find out who really instigated, who started that complaining. It was Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who would betray him, who complained. This perfume was worth a year's wages. Why wasn't it sold and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He carried the money bag and would take what was in it. That's what John said. John tells us about Judas, that Judas was leveraging the poor, not to help them, but to advance his own agenda. And I realize people who advocate for the poor aren't always skimming. I don't think they're, I think it would be very rare for them to be skimming from the money they make. But they are pursuing their own agenda, or at least the danger is that they would. So the last point here is to be very careful advocating, not because people don't need advocates, but because it's very easy to fool yourself and begin advocating really for yourself. So economic inequality is something that Jesus has taught us about. He's taught us that we who are rich have a positive obligation to help people who have less. And um, we need to do that if the government um, is, is able and willing, and we need to do it if the government isn't. We need to look at the actual results because we're not talking about programs or abstract people in the abstract, we're talking about real people with real teenage sons, real people who long to eat the crumbs that fall from our tables. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks that we are, um, we are among the rich, that you have blessed us with more than, more than, um, a lot of people can even imagine, and certainly more than we need. Lord, we pray that you would give us, um, generous hearts so that we can be part of of the tradition that bothered Emperor Julian so much. We can be part of the, the Christians who made a difference um, by helping the poor. Lord, help us to be that generous. Help us to, to be worthy of the name of Christian so that we can continue the long and fruitful tradition of Christians helping those who need it. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.